This is The New Criterion. I'm James Pinero, Executive Editor. There's a breathless bit of zen, a dash of lardish sentiment, and a lot of pure idiocy on every page. They're better poems than Leonard Nimoy's or Charlie Sheen's, which isn't saying much. Hers are mostly grammatical. Over 300 people contributed to have this book published. I won't say they were heartlessly swindled. I'll say they got just what they deserved. From our latest verse chronicle, that's the verdict on a final book of poems by the late science fiction writer Ursula K. Le Guin. And they could only have been written by the New Criterion's fearless poetry critic, William Logan, who joins us now. William, welcome. Thank you, James. Glad to be here. William Logan has been writing for the New Criterion since 1985. Identity Cards, his verse chronicle that appears in the December 2018 issue, is his 102nd contribution to the magazine. I say contribution to include all that William writes for us. In addition to his biannual chronicle, which has appeared every December and June since 1995, William also contributes essays, reviews, and his own poetry to our pages. In fact, readers will find a few of his latest poems in our January 2019 issue. William, your verse chronicle is a new criterion institution. When I started here many years ago, a colleague suggested to me it's the most important criticism we publish. In its penetrating forthrightness, there is certainly nothing else like it, especially in the rather squalid world of contemporary poetry. In addition to Le Guin, your latest column covers the poetry of Frederick Seidel, Max Ritvo, Sam Sachs, Joss Charles, and Ede Limon. And per standard, the piece runs to eight magazine pages in length. I understand you've prepared a selection or two to read to us today. I'll read from a review of Frederick Seidel. Like Frank O'Hara, Seidel has become a poet of dogged dailiness, just angrier, and sadly, often writing in a doggerel that might have embarrassed Ogden Nash. I've made the comparison before, and I'm afraid Nash would have every right to be offended. Every time I sleep, I leave a stain. When I wake up, I climb out of a drain and step into my feet, and it is plain that when I walk away, I leave a lane of garbage on the carpet in the train. Few poems have been written about the incontinence of old age. After this, few seem more than enough. When Auden tried to write doggerel, he couldn't help but be half good. Sadell is trying to be all bad. Umani nihil me alianum puto, said Terence, a long while back. I suppose nothing human is alien to me. Sadell's addendum goes, let nothing human be human to me either. Every small beef and every trivial slight becomes an opera, and every opera an opera bouffe. Poetry has gone a long while without a decent Pagliaccio, and it's a pity that our Pagliaccio has too much of the Three Stooges in his makeup. There comes a time when a poet has his style on tap, barrels and barrels of it, and all he has to do is turn the spigot. Sadel opens his mouth like some creature from Dante's Malibolge, and bile comes spewing forth. This comedy humaine never seems quite humane. Indeed, he's our contemptuous broigle, his world and nightmare made flesh, the monsters hiding in plain sight. Seidel has become a town crier, retailing the sordid gossip of the day while occasionally wailing, Bring out the dead. A grouchy old white man in a grouchy old white man body, delighted to piss and moan whether the subject's global warming or global economic collapse 
or global halitosis. And yet, and yet, Sadel has the breadth of Whitman, a hunger for being, a gift of outrage, as well as what Whitman mostly lacked, a painful cloddishness and a taste for bad verse, rarely seen since the days of William McGonagall. <laughs> Wonderful. How do you select the books for each chronicle? I have, like a lot of writers, piles of books in my study. Usually there's about three or four or five feet of poetry books, often precariously vertical. And I go through them, some rapidly, some slowly, some long enough to know that I might review it or might not. And some seem immediately a book that needs to be reviewed by me. That may be a book that I just absolutely fall in love with, though I wish that happened all the more often. And sometimes it's a book by a poet I haven't reviewed for, say, a decade, but the poet is of some standing. I feel an obligation of sorts to keep in touch with that poet, and so I review it. I don't know in advance how the review will come out. I don't set out to write mean reviews. Some of them are mean, some of them are not so mean, and some are enthusiastic. That is not much of a method, but it's my method. Are there poets you will not review in the sense, let's say, it's their first book of poetry? Will you wait till a second or third book comes out? When I started reviewing poetry, oh, 30, 40 years ago, I would review anything, a first book, a second book, a last book. But when I moved into my 40s, I began to feel that because I have a somewhat captious temperament, it probably wasn't the best thing for me to review a first book unless I was enthusiastic. So I modified my mild rules, and unless a book had received, say, a lot of publicity where I might feel that it was good to weigh in, I'll wait for a book or two and see what happens to the poet. On the other hand, if a first book knocks me out, I will definitely put it in the must-review list. Mm. In the world of poetry, you are known as a tough, if not the toughest, critic to please. Are you grading on a curve, or is contemporary poetry simply lacking? Well, <laughs> good question. Um, I think Randall Terrell said somewhere that if a critic wants to be the perfect critic, he'll just slam every book in front of him, and he'll have a nearly 100% success rate. Obviously, you can't do that and be a real critic of any sort. You have to love things in order to hate things. It's no good for the reader if every review you write is mean. I would prefer to think that if a critic is selective, that a reader will begin to see over a period of time what that taste is like and whether that taste is at all interesting to that particular reader. We're not ever going to be perfect, those of us who like writing criticism, but... We can be honest to our taste and feel that at the end of the day, we've said some interesting things about interesting people. Now, not everyone is pleased with your reviews. After one review on our pages in 2004, Franz Wright threatened to give you, quote, the crippling beating you so clearly masochistically desire. To which you responded, I will come and go as I please and would be glad to provide him with an itinerary. Do you often hear from the poets you cover? No, it's, it's interesting. Over the years, I have heard from very few people I've given very good reviews to and almost no people I've given very bad reviews to. There have been some who have written, having received a bad review, who say, I'm glad you were honest about your taste. I may not agree with it, but I'm glad you're writing that sort of criticism. 
And when I say a few, I mean a few, three or four or five over the last 30 years. This is not surprising. I don't think writers often write to reviewers to praise their taste or criticize their taste. It's not that it can't be done, but it probably can't be done very well. You have authored some seven books of essays and reviews and 11 volumes of your own poems. Do you find it difficult for the critic to write poetry or for the poet to write criticism? I think it's difficult for the critic to write poetry when he's writing criticism and difficult for the poet to write criticism when he's writing poetry. I don't have what is usually called writer's block, not in any real sense. The poet's... Donald Justice and W.D. Snodgrass once met on the streets of Iowa City and began to complain that neither of them was writing. At the end of a long conversation on this, Snodgrass asked Justice, well, Don, how long haven't you been writing? And Justice said, two weeks. And Snodgrass said, two weeks? I'm talking about two years. Well, I don't seem to have that problem, for better or worse. And when I'm done with writing criticism, I often feel a great urge to write poetry. I can't say that I always feel, having written poems, that I have a great urge to write criticism, but a deadline will come up, there will be something to write, and I'll throw myself into it. Are you a tough self-critic? I live with someone who's a tougher critic than I could ever be on myself, the poet Deborah Greger, and she's been criticizing my poetry and my criticism now for over 40 years. I can't ask for somebody who is more willing to exercise the editor's right, which is to cross off a lot of things. Mm -hmm. Identity Cards deals in identity politics. Reading it, I was struck with a sense that contemporary poetry is becoming more political. And in fact, the cover essay in the latest New York Times book review by our poet laureate Tracy K. Smith, called Politics and Poetry, makes the case that, quote, political poetry is hot again. Do you agree? Well, uh... <laughs> Yes, I, I would say that Tracy K. Smith is absolutely right, putting her finger on just what most of us have noticed, which is that a lot of political poetry is now being published. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I don't think it's necessarily a good thing either. I think the problem is that a lot of poetry written with a political mind is not all that good as poetry, and we tend to notice it more. Um, perhaps we're more forgiving of poetry that is not so political. I wrote a long while ago about a later book by Adrienne Rich that what was political in her poems wasn't poetry and what was poetry isn't political. There have been poets who have been wonderful writing political poetry. Auden was one. Seamus Heaney was another. They knew how to make a poem out of politics without making it seem as if they were also standing on a soapbox. And I fear that much of the political poetry now being written will not be very lasting. I think a lot of the attitudes expressed need to be expressed. But I don't think that as poetry it has much chance of being read 10 or 20 or 30 years from now. And I instance in that regard the poetry against the Vietnam War. Uh, there were a lot of reasons to write poetry against the war, but I don't think there really were any lasting poems to come out of it out of the thousands that were written against that war, against the Iraq War. It is very difficult to write good political poetry. And it's very difficult to write poetry of any kind. And on identity politics and poetry, are these just updates, updated songs of myself? I think that's so. We've always had poets who have written personally. The sonnets of Milton were very personal for the most part. The Romantics wrote personally. Whitman wrote personally. Dickens wrote 
with an interior that only someone like Sylvia Plath has matched. We call it different things at different times, uh, the romantic temperament, say. But the contemporary phenomenon often seems to be that if you don't write personally, you're thought not to be writing poetry at all. You're writing something that is out of date or old-fashioned. I think that's a bit unfair to those who prefer to write that way. But I don't think we can ever legislate in advance what makes good poetry. Poetry doesn't really care who writes it or why or how or what genre. Good poetry will always emerge. It makes it sound a little like Jurassic Park, I fear. But good poetry will come out sooner or later. And again, as an example, I think of Elizabeth Bishop who was beloved by the few until she died, and then beloved by the very many. Who knows what her reputation will be half a century or a century from now, but I think it will be closer to what it is now than it was to the reputation she had after her first or second book. We wait for taste to develop, just as we wait to see critics proved wrong. Well, and more generally, why write poetry? Why say something in a poem that might be said more directly in prose? I'm not sure I have a great answer to that question. Those of us who love writing poetry love it because it made us feel a certain way. The first poems I wrote were absolutely terrible, but I liked the feeling of putting those words together, and I liked them because when I had read good poetry, it made me feel a certain thing, whatever that thing is. Well, beyond the politics, as a critic, how do you evaluate poetry at a time when we can't even agree on the prosody? <laughs> Well, we do our best, perhaps that's an answer. Uh, <laughs> it's it's always easy to judge those who are judging and to say that they're absolutely wrong. And sometimes they are absolutely wrong. I did an essay a few years back about some famous books, Leaves of Grass, The Wasteland, and Lyrical Ballads. And I looked back and saw what contemporary critics had said of them. Now, it, it has often been said that the critics got those books wrong. And I disagree. I don't think they got those books wrong. When I looked at the actual reviews, they were very good. They were very perceptive. The one theme that made them feel wrong to others much later was that each of the reviewers said or tended to say, this isn't poetry. And poetry had to move a few years later into a place where it turned out that Coleridge and Wordsworth or Whitman or Eliot had in fact been breaking new ground. What critics tend not to see very often is that something new has happened and that is something that is now poetry. You are a professor of English at the University of Florida and a renowned teacher of poetry. How do you teach poetry? <laughs> yes, we do get asked that a lot. I teach poetry by using assignments. I know that's not always a popular way to go about it, but it does various things for the students. If you give a student a difficult assignment, say you set a sort of form, it doesn't have to be a prosodic form, but a form of certain number of lines, certain length of lines, certain length of poem, and you give them a rough theme, give them a subject, or give them, as I always do, some perfectly absurd things that must go into the poem, say a dog, or three months, or a kind of candy, or all of these, it makes them start to think and to imagine. And once they have those limitations, the imagination kicks in rather well. It doesn't work for every student every time. But if all the students have to complete the same assignment, and then you examine the best of those poems, what happens is the students begin to get jealous of each other. 
and most of us started writing because we were jealous of some writer we read. We read it, we were thrilled by it, we wanted to write like that. When you can reproduce that feeling, even to a little extent, in the classroom, the students are halfway to being writers. How can non-poets better appreciate poetry? Should we read the Norton Anthology cover to cover? Should we memorize and recite Wordsworth's Hintern Abbey? That is an almost impossible question to ask because you don't know the temperament of the individual readers. I would say if an individual reader reading 50 or 100 poems written in the last 30 or 40 years doesn't find anything, then, uh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll bring back an anecdote by Randall Jarrell. He said that he was asked by an older man, Jarrell would have been in his 30s or 40s, how he should go about reading contemporary poetry. And Jarrell said, uh, I believe he put it, cutting my cloth to his coat. Jarrell said, I suggested Robert Frost. And the man said, no, I'm sorry, I've tried Robert Frost. It's not for me. And Jarrell said, well, the only thing to say at that point is, you must be born again. <laughs> Last May, you concluded an essay for us on the subject of poetry criticism titled Notes Towards an Introduction with these evocative final lines. Poems are not mirrors, no matter how reflective they seem. They're black pools, tarns, in Frost's word. As the reader often senses, something moves within or beneath a poem, the shadow of a great fish, or an invisible hand. What is it about a great poem that gets us beneath the surface? A wonderful question, James. Um, a great poem is a poem we can live with for a very long time and always find new things in. When I was writing a series of essays that became the book Dickinson's Nerves, Frost Woods, I was dealing only with poems I knew, I thought, very well. And yet, the longer I looked, the more things there were that I hadn't seen, hadn't heard, or hadn't addressed. I think that makes them great poems, at least in my view. You have been listening to The New Criterion, available on iTunes, SoundCloud, at newcriterion.com. I'm James Panero, Executive Editor. My guest today has been William Logan. William's latest collection of essays is Dickinson's Nerves, Frost's Woods, and his latest book of poems is Rift of Light. Identity Cards, his latest verse chronicle, appears in the December 2018 issue of The New Criterion. William, thank you for joining us. Thank you, James.